Welcome to The Hidden Truth, Breaking the Silence. I'm your host, Jonathan McLernan. Each episode, we explore stories of individuals and how they've been affected by being a part of a secretive Christian fellowship. The stories shared here may include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Dysfunction happens when doctrine meets dogma and silence is paramount. So let's pull back the veil on today's episode of The Hidden Truth. All right, it's my pleasure today to be interviewing Rhonda, uh, and Rhonda is has become a good friend of mine through some mutual connections. Uh, I'm trying to think of how we actually uh, initially got connected. I think we both landed in a like a chat group, basically, uh, around some of the issues that we've been trying to deal with in the fellowship. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And uh, I know you've been doing some wonderful work trying to advocate for for survivors as well. And you yourself are a survivor, so we're going to explore your your story today, and then uh, also how that ties into the work that you're doing to support survivors and be an advocate moving forward. So, welcome to the show. Great, thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. So, if we if we first start with um, your your connection to the fellowship, um, your history, you know, born and raised, uh, you know, uh, what the fellowship has has been for you. Well, I'm fourth generation. My great grandparents founded in Oregon many decades ago, and I was raised in a professing home. Uh, My dad was first generation. He actually was a minister for three and a half years. Um, He found religion in the army with um, Billy Graham, and then he ended up having a bunkmate that had been professing, and, and he went home with him on leave and found this ministry and switched over and his workership didn't go real well in the ministry. <laughs> and so he ended up seeing meeting my mom and we, we grew up in a, a home in this fellowship. Okay. Yeah. And so, and you yourself uh, professed at, at what age? I was just nine years old. I professed at Manhattan convention cause I grew up in Montana. Okay. And, and, uh, what made it feel like that that was the right step for you at that time? If you can think back, you know, it's a few years back now, uh, but what what uh, felt like this was the step that you should take? You know, there's moments in life that you never forget, and it's usually emotionally charged moments, and that was one of them. Um, I remember at five years old, I used to cry in my bed because I just thought life was so hard, and I didn't understand why I was here. And my mom taught me to pray. And so that always made me feel better. And then sitting there on Saturday night at Manhattan Convention, there was literally a still small voice that said, you need to stand up, you need to proclaim that you love the Lord and will serve the Lord. And and so that's what I did at nine. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and you've been professing for 51 years ever since. I have. Oh, you just told my age. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we're not we're not supposed to ask that question, right? Um, it's not political, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's okay. Um, I, I think the the years are are hard earned, and, and the wisdom is hard earned as well. So, yeah. Um, so you yourself um, are a, a victim survivor, um, and it, whatever you feel comfortable sharing um, about your story, we'd like to explore. It kind of what happened to you in a sense and how that affected you and and maybe how that also affected your connection to this fellowship. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like where to start. And I've put a lot of thought into this, Jonathan, because it's, (laughs) I'm behaving, you know, from the research I've done, like a classic trauma victim where you try to protect your perpetrators. And I Mm -hmm. see that, but The bottom line is, is that there's people that are still alive that it could just unravel their life if they knew. And, and so without going into, you know, who it was or deep details, I'm just going to say that um, when I was six years old in first grade, there was a babysitter who was 14 years old and he was a male and he babysat us with his sister who was 12. And my mom and dad never had babysitters. Like they never went out. It was just kind of weird how this happened, but they ended up having a work function and they hired the neighbors. They were our only neighbors because we lived out in the country. And 
there was a very explicit experience um, for me. And what was even more traumatizing to me is when I was finished with that experience, he took my little sister into the bathroom and I was screaming and crying and beating on the door because I was so upset that he was going to do it to her. And his sister was dragging me down the hall, trying to get me away from the door. And I have to say that that helplessness to not be able to protect her was worse Mm -hmm. than the whole experience itself. And then when I was nine, 10 years old and developing, um, there was a professing man and elder who started from behind feeling me there in my chest. Mm -hmm. And I avoided him as much as I could. And, and then when I was 14 years old in the hallway in our home, um, walking to my bedroom, the guest room was across from my room. And a worker came out, a male worker, and he just started talking to me, which didn't think anything of it until he started touching me and rubbing my arm and coming on to me and obviously grooming me. And I felt very uncomfortable. And I ran down the hall into my bedroom, which did not have a lock on the door. And so that was one of the hardest nights of my life because I couldn't sleep. I was so afraid he'd come in. He didn't, thank the good Lord. Um, but yeah, those are my three experiences. And just um, looking at this whole scenario of what's happened in our church, I um, I never thought I was affected by the CSA. I really didn't. It was nothing to me compared to the abusive childhood I had with a dad who just had out of control rage and beat us and knocked our heads together and knocked our heads against the wall and called us little shits all the time. And, you know, that had way more impact in my mind, in my conscious mind than the other. But when Brewer Gate happened in March, and I started realizing that, wow, it's just not me and my sisters and my mom when she was little and her aunts when they were girls. There, there's not just a few of us. There's like a multitude of us. And the reality then just was shocking to me. And and then that's when the, I call it reliving the trauma came up for me. And I, I started researching CSA and how it affects the brain and how it affects your life. And all of a sudden, a lot of struggles that I'd had over the years made sense to me. It was like, oh, my word, it was affecting me and I didn't even know it. And I'd say one of the main thing is, is that I found that a lot of chronic um, diseases um, happen from CSA. And I got arthritis and osteoarthritis when I was in my early 20s. And that's not normal. And yes, it, I it had an accident, but I had a doctor one time tell me, you know, it's not normal for a body not to heal. I don't know what your problem is. So they sent me to a psychologist. So that was a real joy. And, mm-hmm. and he ended up telling me that basically I just needed attention. And so that's why I always had pain. So our medical... Wow allopathic medicine is a joke. I I lost all respect for doctors after that because I was not a hypochondriac. In fact, I didn't like hypochondriacs at all because my grandmother had been one. And I told him, you're so wrong. You just are practicing physician and you don't know what you're talking about because I like to do things like ski jump and race and stuff like that for attention, not be a sick person. You know, that's a whole nother story. But anyway, Hopefully yeah. I'm not ranting on and on. No, no. And thank you. Thank you so much. Also just for sharing. It's it's very, very difficult to share, but I think also being able to see and to hear the emotion, the feeling behind the experience uh, makes it much more real. Um, I mean, there's great value in words being shared on paper or being shared on a screen. I think there there's power in that as well, but uh, to hear and to feel um, the human experience uh, creates even greater impact with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the, from the time the, the first incident and the second incident that you described, um, happened, uh, had you, did you share any of that, like what had happened with your parents? And if so, what was the response? Yeah. So what these perpetrators do is they entice you and, and then they threaten you. And so he had threatened me that, 
really bad things would happen to my family and to me and so forth if I told anybody. And I Mm -hmm. literally was sworn to secrecy. And I intended on keeping that. But, you know, I'm six years old and every day we drive down the, the mountain and in the car with my mom. And one morning I asked her on the way to school, how are babies made? And so she told us. My mom was really good about authentic communication and teaching us about everything in life. She was amazing that way. And then she thought to herself, wait a minute, why is she asking me this? This I don't know if this is normal for a six-year-old. So when I got home from school, she started interrogating me basically until I broke down and I told her what happened. And I was terrified, terrified that mm-hmm. bad things were going to happen to her, my dad, Um Yeah. So she told my dad and he went over to the neighbors. They lived about a quarter of a mile from our house and he drove up there and he was ready to just rage. And Eric and Minnie, the two people that did this, denied it 100%. And their dad got really mad at my dad. And basically they became non-neighbors to us. My mom and dad just divorced them, weren't friends with them anymore. Um, but yeah, they never went to the police or anything like that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so that that's an immensely difficult thing for uh, that's it feels like even an understatement for a six year old to experience and then to bear that and then and then to essentially have it denied and uh, your your credibility uh, called into question at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that affect how you interacted with other other like even kids at school and things like that, your socialization? You know what? It definitely impacted me. I never realized it until the last six months doing my research and reading about all this stuff. But um, the first one that really impacted, and this wasn't at school, but this was my mom told her best friend and I had asked her not to tell anybody. But of course, mom needed somebody to talk to about it. She was upset about it. So she told my Aunt Linda and it was a couple years later when I found that out and it crushed me. I, I It just crushed me. I was so embarrassed that my Auntie Linda knew about what happened to me and I was humiliated. I felt shame. And yeah, at school, I didn't trust kids. Like I just, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because as over the years, you know, recently, like in the last 10 years, I discovered that I'm an empath and empath people are drawn to, they bring their, their troubles to you and you listen and you're a good listener and sometimes you give advice. And so I became like the school psychologist and literally the kids would come to me in droves and tell me their secrets and their stuff. And I would just be empathetic and understanding and a good listener, but I never allowed myself to get close to anybody. Mm-hmm. I didn't have mm-hmm. best friends or. You, you kept very, very uh, clear boundaries and maybe not even mm-hmm. understanding why. Right. And so, and, and so the, the, the first incident wasn't with, uh, with someone that was a part of this fellowship. That was just a, a neighbor. Uh, was that correct? Yeah. Right. And then, so the second one that you, you, you described there, you mentioned it, if I heard it correctly, it was an elder uh, of a meeting. Yeah. And this one, I really don't want to talk about too much because his Absolutely. wife is still living and she's a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing I, I guess I wanted to ask there is because I don't know if you had yet professed or, or if that was something that was on your heart. Um, but how that might have affected your perception of the of the fellowship, maybe even like being Christian and serving God. Yeah, my whole childhood made me question a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> as, as it would. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, somehow God protected me. Like I had a lot of good discernment as a child. When my dad would lose control and go into his rages and just scream and rage at us and criticize us and everything, I remember a little voice in my head would say, he's not right. There's something wrong with him. It's not true. And I would deny it. And I actually talked to one of my sisters about that recently. And 
she was amazed that I was able to do that. And so I don't know what that was because she said she internalized everything he said and believed it. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. that That's quite something as well. And so, um, and your father, uh, was he professing? Did he go to meetings? Uh, I mean, you mentioned he hadn't, but at this time, like, did he continue? Yeah, my dad has continued. He's still alive, which makes this really hard because I feel like I'm throwing my parents under the bus. But I, I'll just tell you, I love my parents. They're the only parents I had. Um, I've forgiven my dad. I've forgiven my mom for allowing him to do what he did. I truly feel like they did the best they could. Um I think my dad had a tragic childhood <laughs> and he was repeating the cycle, which Jonathan, we know that's what happens. A lot of kids yes. grow up yep. and they become their parents and they abuse. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm, I'm super grateful that I knew things were wrong. I knew things in the fellowship were wrong. I, I could spot things. I became very sensitive to it. And But I knew God was good. And I read my Bible and I prayed for protection and I prayed for his wisdom and his discernment. And so basically, when I left home at 17, and I couldn't wait to leave home, I can tell you that, mm -hmm. I, I went to um, college, but I spent a lot of time at the library and I discovered the self-help section. And I started reading mm -hmm. those books and then I started following. I got those tapes, you know, the Zig Ziglar tapes and all those. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, the old greats, you know. And I started changing my inner talk, that inner voice and working on myself and going to seminars, transformational seminars and so forth, which are very powerful and I was so fortunate, Jonathan, because of all that work I did, plus my relationship with God, I literally don't think I'd be alive today if it wasn't for God. I really don't. Because, you know, with CSA um, abuse, most of the victims end up in addictive behavior patterns that can destroy their life. And fortunately, my addiction has been food. And I don't mean that, you know, that's a good thing. Food and shopping has been my thing. Um, right. You know, so it's safe in the sense that it hasn't killed me. But I'm not the healthiest duck out there either, you know. But <laughs> the bottom line is, as I recognize that pattern my whole life, and it's helped me be really empathetic to other survivors, because I get it. You know, it's literally a way of self-soothing. It's a way of self-medicating. It's a great distraction. So you don't have and to escape, face the yeah. pain that just, you know, you and I know that trauma is a wound. It's like an open infection in your mm. leg that just never heals. It just won't yeah. heal. And there's that emotional pain that just grabs onto you and, and it's always there. It's under the surface. And just when you think you got it down pat and you're doing great, then something happens and I call it being thrown back into the pit again. And you're like, oh my word, I'm in the pit of despair again. And I've spent a lifetime trying to improve my life and be a better person and so forth. So it's like there's this underlying saboteur, I call it, that just mm -hmm. wants to sabotage you. And it's that inner voice that was we were programmed when we were a child. Um, yep. It's a constant life work to overcome that voice and overcome the limiting beliefs that we grow up with and so forth. But I'm super thankful that God gave me the discernment that these things that happened to me were wrong and and that men and women were given free will. And, you know, because I remember talking to my aunt about it one time, and she said, God is good. God is not bad. He gave man free will. And and they're the ones that harmed you, not God. Because there's been time in my life, too, where when I was in the pit of despair and I got very angry with God. It's like, it's just so unfair, you know? Why did this happen to me? Why did you mm -hmm. allow this to happen to me? Why did mm -hmm. you, why did you permit this? Um, th there's... Uh, an interesting, um, I guess, commentary that I was listening to a, a gentleman speak on, and I probably won't paraphrase it very well, but he was kind of speaking about this and, and why these things occur. And, it, you know, he talked about, like, without um, 
if you didn't have hatred and evil, you wouldn't have love and good because there there is a contrast, right? Because if you didn't, you would just have nothing. And so right. there was a risk. There was a risk. So it's like um, we think about being parents and having kids and we think, well, there's a risk that something could happen to them. Mm-hmm. But we're willing to we're willing to take that risk because it's it's worth it. And I mean, there's much more that, that could be said. Um, but it, so it was really interesting for me to to think about that because this has been one of the most difficult things to reconcile. Like, why why is there suffering and why is there evil and why is there pain and why is is, is life hard? If and especially if if God is good, and I think that that's helpful to begin to understand that to to kind of reconcile that. And so. As you as you think back to your, I guess you, kind of your teen years, and and you have this imprinted on you because we know that these experiences that happen uh, with a very young developing brain, especially six, you know, brain very very, um, you know, early on in the stages of development and and maturation, like there's an imprint that is is left there. Were there any other patterns of behavior uh, like rebellion or anything like that that kind of emerged as as a teenager, um, as a way of kind of coping or dealing, or did you keep a lot of that buried down? I think I buried it pretty well. You know, the brain does that to protect us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you, you left home and it maybe it felt like a, a significant relief. In your growing up years, was there ever a time that your your father had moments of clarity where maybe he felt sorry for his, his behavior or um, tried to, to make amends prior to you leaving home? My dad got really good at apologizing. And I remember one time that I was sobbing and crying when I was about seven years old and him rocking me in the rocking chair and trying to soothe me and comfort me. And and I remember allowing myself to trust him again. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, there was out of control rage again. And I noticed that his apology didn't mean that much the next time and I didn't trust him. And there came a point as a teenager that his apologies made me sick to my stomach. It's like, yeah, right. You know, mm-hmm. don't even bother, dude, because you don't mean it and you're never going to change and you're always going to be abusive. Um, I wasn't rebellious. I was more like the little goody two shoes that did everything to please mom and dad and didn't make wave. And my poor, I was the oldest of four and my poor younger sister that's closest to me. I used to rat her out and tell on her and stuff. So she, <laughs> and I, I think now, you know, cause she was a bit rebellious and, and I think now, I mean, we've talked about it and we're close and stuff now, but, um, that was my way of somehow looking good to my parents. I did become like a workaholic as a teenager. And I realized looking back when I was doing my coaching and and personal growth work and everything that I literally became a workaholic in high school um, teaching piano. I ended up having like 27 students in my junior and senior year of high school, which is like a full-time job. Um, Mm -hmm. And my parents were always broke and struggling and stuff. So they'd borrow money from me. But the bottom line is, is I think I was trying to get love. I think I was trying to get approval from this man, this father that just couldn't get his act together and couldn't make me feel loved or give me love in a way that I felt loved. And so I was trying to gain his approval and it never would happen. But, you know, later in my 20s, when I was going through the transformational seminars and reading the books and so forth, um, I learned to set boundaries. <laughs> and it was beautiful. <laughs> right, yeah. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I started exercising boundaries. And one time he came to live with me and get a job where I was at because he was struggling with work. And um, he started doing his abuse stuff and I kicked him out. I told yep. him, you don't get to treat me like that. I took it as a child, but I will not take it as an adult. And there was a time where I didn't speak to him for two years. And I told him he had to get counseling before he could ever have a relationship with me again. And I would say it was in my 40s that I I finally figured out that he's not going to change. And 
I had to learn to forgive him and love him as he was and as he wasn't. And Mm -hmm. I can say that that's the most beautiful experience because to not have to like talking about him now and stuff, it, Mm -hmm. there's no charge there, which is huge. It is. It's very significant as we know. Yeah. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is an interesting one because it's really about um, letting go, (laughs) but there's, I, I do believe it's also misunderstood to some degree. Like you just have to forgive and forget. It's like, well, no, I'm not going to forget. No, you don't. You can't. I, I'm, I can't. I can't forget. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where what happened to me can happen again if I can avoid it. Right. Like, you know, and, and the other thing about forgiveness, uh, so, someone made this remark. And again, I'm kind of paraphrasing uh, off the cuff here, but it was, you know, it's important that repented of sin is forgiven, but sin that where there is no repentance can't really be forgiven. And if you try to forgive that sin, you're saying that it's irrelevant and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And it does matter because we, we know that the nature of God is to be just and to be righteous. And so it actually does matter. Mm-hmm. And so forgiveness is really, yeah, it's, it's this idea of letting go and giving the burden to God and saying, this is what I've experienced. And so as you, as you go through adulthood and, and uh, you're pursuing self-development yourself, uh, how did that, how did that, I, actually, I guess what I wanted to ask was, did you ever find or feel as though there was any conflict between personal development and uh, what it teaches and its promises to transform you and heal you and change you and uh, your relationship with God, which in a sense is supposed to be transformative in a, in a spiritual sense as well? Well, you know, that's <laughs> that's a really good question because I've come full circle now. And when you look at the title of the whole section, self-help, right? Mm. And it takes God out of it. And so basically, I actually think that that whole thing is Satan's um, camouflaged way of helping people that really all the help is there through God. But he did a really good job at teaching how to help yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think that now I've turned more to Christian help and Christian thoughts and Bible ideologies and stuff. I'm not sorry for all the self-help. I still have a lot of my books and stuff because I learned how to help myself. I learned how to reprogram my brain and my thoughts and snuff Mm -hmm. the little negative, naughty teenage voice and sits on my shoulder and criticizes me and, you know, my dad's voice and everything like that. Right. So, but I Mm -hmm. think that Satan does appear as an angel of light. And if he can help us help ourselves without Jesus and without God in our life, then he's one. And, and so, you know, what's interesting about that is I think about, um, uh, so in in the Bible is the story of the, uh, the pool, uh, the pool of Siloam where where an angel would come down and trouble the waters and people would be healed, but they would only ever be physically healed. And the difference between that and between Jesus healing is with it came the forgiveness of sins because under Jewish law, um, that sin was connected to sickness. And so they could only be physically healed, but they weren't necessarily forgiven. And so I think there's sort of an imperfect parallel here between like uh, you can help yourself to some degree, but there's still a void there that, that, uh, you know, the devil cannot help you um, heal or, or reconcile. And so, now, along the way, uh, you met your husband, who is a very good man. Uh, mm-hmm. And how, how did you how did you meet him? Well, you know, um, it's it's a miracle, basically. <laughs> I yeah. was before him. I was dating my dad. Right. I mean, what happens is you repeat the. Yeah, metaphorically. Yeah. Because what happens is you um, attract the chaos that your subconscious mind stores from your childhood and people don't know it. And over time it comes out. So I was dating a guy that um, I was actually reading one of my self-help books. It was um, women who love too much when you hope you'll change and he can't by Robin Norwood. I love that book. Mm. And I was like 23, 24 years old. I was dating this guy that I was madly in love with. And we worked together and he saw me reading that book at lunch. And he's like, why are you reading that book? I'm like, what? You know, what's it to you? And he's like, it's going to make me look bad. And I goes, this book has nothing to do with you, dude, you know, calm down. And he's like, well, did you see the title? And so then I was like, oh my word, his, 
anger was coming out because I was reading her book and it was like a gift from God because I had not seen that side of him before. And it helped me break up with him. And then I knew what to look for because of her book, um, you know, in dating and so forth. And that you're automatically inclined, even though I'd done all the work I'd done, that I would automatically be inclined to, to uh, marry somebody that had rage and anger issues. And um, so I just, I went to a convention. Well, I went to a ski together in Colorado and met a good friend of mine, Elaine, and um, met her at a convention later on, a church convention in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I met him there. And yeah. And so here, here's something uh, because this kind of fits into the discussion here, um, or, or here's where maybe I'd like to fit it in, is you, you meet a good man um, who, who is, and you're breaking the cycle, you're breaking the pattern. Uh, you, you know, as you mentioned, your subconscious brain looks for the things that are familiar, even when the familiar is hurtful. Right. And so to 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 break that cycle is quite remarkable, first off, to be able to do that. But um were, were you going into this relationship with still some, if I could put it this way, as gracious as possible, like unresolved baggage, things that you were still struggling with? <laughs> and and if so, uh, how did how did he help you to navigate that? How do, how do you reconcile that? And, and why I ask is because I think about people who have been traumatized and to go into a relationship that involves deep trust is a very, very difficult thing to do. It is. And people are afraid. And so w- what helps to sort of connect those things? Jonathan, I'm a pilot. I got an airplane and I put all my baggage in it. And at about 15,000 feet, I just threw it all out. So I entered this relationship with no baggage. Wink, wink. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I thought I was doing pretty good, you know. And um, Galen, I guess classically you'd call it, I was the, the damsel in distress and he was my saving grace prince basically and he rescued me um i didn't hide anything for him from him back then we didn't have cell phones so our phone bill was horrendous but we talked on the phone almost every night and you know over time i started telling my story and my background and my abuse and my history and um he listened he was an amazing listener you know and I told him a lot of stuff about my dad and he still liked me. It's kind of amazing. I was really taking a risk Mm -hmm. there, but to me, authentic communication and honesty is key to any relationship. And I didn't want him to, to be in a relationship with me if, if he thought my family was more than they were, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So anyway, baggage sense, it came out um, about a year into our marriage um, it was just too good to be true, to be loved. I, I I could hardly take it in that he actually loved me, you know? And so I went to a transformational seminar that I talked him into going and and he didn't believe in any of that stuff, like mm-hmm. my tapes and all that. He wouldn't listen to him and he thought it was just, you know, no, no need for him. And I said, yeah, but it'll make you better and smarter in business. Oh, it will. So then he got interested. <laughs> and so he okay. went to one with us and, and they did a, they did a healing technique about forgiveness and stuff. And it happened to be with my dad and stuff. And when we got home that night, I I saw a lot of my baggage, like, oh my word, it's so hard for me to trust people. And I really don't believe that Galen really loves me. And so I ended up mm. telling him that that it, it was just so hard for me to believe that he loved me unconditionally and, and for just who I was and that I didn't have to try to impress him or be somebody I wasn't or whatever. And we had an amazing healing moment then because I literally ended up going through um, kind of a mental breakdown where I sobbed and cried and he yelled me for like an hour. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like that layer of the onion peeled away and I knew he would love me for who I am, for who I am not, for my strengths, for my weaknesses. Like he was in for the long game and it was okay. I didn't have to try to be perfect. It was amazing. That's incredible. That's beautiful. And I'm so grateful that you shared that as well. I think for survivors to hear that it's possible is also really, really incredible. And it's it's certainly not easy. I mean, 
my baggage came after I was married. My trauma came after I was married. Mm -hmm. And so my incredible wife <laughs> went yeah. through some, some pretty t tough years with me yeah. as I was trying to figure all this business out. Like, what's wrong with me? What happened to me? Why did I change? What? I don't yeah. know what's, you know, what's going on. And so I think that's really beautiful. And this kind of leads into the work that you that you were doing. And I think that you're really, uh, like I say, well-equipped to do. It's um, it's quite something when we can turn our trauma into uh, a way of helping others and connecting with others. And I, I said, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do if I hadn't gone through what I went through. I wouldn't put up my hand to go through it again, but it's got me to where I am today. And uh what what is what has this kind of led into for you? Well, you know, I'm gonna to just say too that being a parent teaches you a lot too, right? I mean, like <laughs> you learn so much from your kids, and I know you've got a two year old and a baby, and we were talking about that before the interview, and and I was just thinking back about how I was so determined that my kids were going to have an amazing childhood. And I was not going to repeat the cycle. And so my whole experience with raising kids, I was still doing the work. I was still reading. I was still reading books about good parenting and, you know, not taking the abuse out on them and so forth. Now, obviously, I'm not perfect. and But I, I can honestly say I did the best I could and better than most. Mm -hmm. And so looking into the future then... Um, I still had a lot of people that would come to me and tell me their stories and stuff and then tell me that I should become a psychologist. And I'm like, ew, a psychologist is the one that told me that I'm a hypochondriac. No, thanks. But yeah. I evolved into um, my daughter ended up having a brain injury. And we spent a lot of money at a lot of different things. And the one thing that helped her, I ended up buying a business in it for four years. And now we've moved to Texas from California, so I don't have it anymore. But I love the coaching part of it. And so I got trained as a neuro coach. And so now I help people with their trauma and with business and so forth by helping them rewire their brain themselves. And it's a powerful way to help yourself. It's, it's, I call it the fast track to success. Well, neuroplasticity is fascinating. I mean, I mean, really, God, God made, no made no mistakes creating us, and a brain that can reorganize itself, rewire itself. What's What's wonderful about that is it, it can give people hope. Like the way that we presently are, or the, whether we're presently stuck in something, it is not necessarily a a life sentence. And I don't want to paint this as though like life is going to be blissfully perfect because we're always going to be confronted with challenges and. Um, you know, I think about the first time that my son made me genuinely angry, and it actually it scared me a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't hit him or anything, um, and I really uh, I I I don't I don't believe in that personally. Um, mm -hmm. But he he took my cell phone and chucked it on a on a tile floor and bricked the thing, a five hundred dollar phone, and he was oh. only I don't know eighteen months old, twenty months old. And of course, he has no idea. He's just destroyed a five hundred dollar phone. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, I was mad. So I, I just told my wife, I was like, I have to go somewhere else right now. I just, I can't be in the same room right now while I just deal with everything that's kind of welled up in here. And uh, that, I, you know, I look back and I think that was a really interesting response. Um, and and uh, I went back and I was able to, you know, I say reconcile. There's not. Uh, he's adorable. He's precious. He's beautiful. I love him <laughs> with all all of my being. So it really didn't take a whole lot. But I just I just kind of had to work through that that feeling of actually genuinely being angry with him for the first time in my life, yeah. and it was it, it kind of caught me off guard. Yeah. But I think with the work the work that I had done to get to that place because I went through trauma. I dealt with a lot of rage after being traumatized as well. It's a very mm -hmm. um, it's a protective response, mm -hmm. and I'm an empath as well. And it, it, you know, here I am trying to serve God to the best of my capacity as I, after having gone through trauma and and the rage and the anger and like trying to to deal with that. And I, and I only show that I don't really want to take take too much away from your story. I'm not trying to make this about me, but just to say that um, there is, you know, there's ongoing work that still happens, even though a lot of work and a lot of healings happen, and that is okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Well, I wanted to commend you on that. That was a great way to handle it. Sometimes parents need a timeout, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, needed that. I needed a timeout. 
I, I we were actually uh, visiting my wife's parents over in Australia, and I may have even gone and jumped in the pool or something to, <laughs> to physically cool off. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so, great. Um, no, you know, I think uh, just being emotionally healthy parents and kind of what you described is really beautiful. This idea of, you know, it's amazing when we can look back and realize our parents did the best they could with what they have. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you mentioned like being in some sense reticent to share elements of your story because your father's still alive. But I think now you look back and, and you, you're able to look through a lens of compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, one of the things that has become the foundation of the work that I do is, is, is compassion. It is like the central tenet of the work that I do. And I think that you as well. Now, compassion for me is not about excusing poor behavior or even criminal behavior, but it's about being able to understand the behavior. Mm-hmm. And so as you look back as an adult and, and through the lens that you now have, with your father's patterns of behavior, are you able to make more sense of it than you were growing up? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He's on a lot of medications now, which he didn't ever believe in, but he's got dementia. And and so they've got him on some antidepressants and anti-anxiety and that really calmed him down. And I told my mom, shoot, we should have put him on those when you were raising us. And she laughed and she's like, he had never taken them. I said, we would have figured out a way, man. We would have put it in the meat or whatever. But yeah, yeah. No, I know that his, you know, he repeated the cycle and that's what most people do. And, and so my story, I hope inspires people to break through the cycle. And even though it's a, a lifetime of work, it's worth it. And you know, yes, you'll get angry with your kids. That's normal. You wouldn't be human if you didn't. But how you handle that anger. The other thing is, is being called names all the time growing up and um, being programmed to despise yourself and think that you were worthless. And, you know, his, his life would have been so much better without us kids and so forth. I was mm-hmm. determined to program my kids positively. And so, when they were naughty or they did something they knew was wrong, I would always tell them that behavior. So I'd always criticize the behavior like, you know, you're a good person, but that behavior is unacceptable and here's why. And so I always mm. tried to make them have good self-worth, but know that that behavior wasn't going to work for me. And it worked really good. My kids all have big time self-confidence. <laughs> that's that's beautiful to hear and and again I, I just love the fact that you are a cycle breaker and and creating a new positive cycle for them and so as we think about what's come forward in the fellowship in particular prior to Brewergate, as we're calling it like were you aware that there were issues under the surface within this fellowship had you maybe just heard the whispers or did you have any idea of the scale um that that was sort of waiting to be unveiled you know what, John, I grew up with a mom that again, was very authentic. And she used to tell us about the elder in her meeting. And he had put his fingers down her panties several different times after meeting room full of people um, out on the porch. One time she was there for dinner, and he had a newspaper in the corner. And he was reading it and called her over and she went over there and he was playing with her behind the newspaper. Hmm. And after that, she avoided him. Like she would even go out the back door from the house after meeting. Her older sister, both of them were also by the same man, molested. And my uncle Don Garland was a minister And he actually took this ministry to Korea. So he's well known in this fellowship. Anyway, my aunt went to him because she was the older one. And him and and their father went to the overseer in Oregon and complained about all these girls that this man was molesting. And that worker said, oh, poor Auntie Margaret. We could never take the fellowship meeting out of their home. It would be so humiliating for her. We just couldn't do that. And so you just protect your younger sisters. This is to the oldest sister, my aunt. And to this day, she is so bitter over that. 
And she told Gail and my husband that story several times when we've been with her. I totally hear her. She told it to me when I was a teenager. It was handled insidiously. Um, at one point, I told her, you know, Auntie Agnes, they, they don't, back then, nobody talked about this stuff, right? So it's amazing that Uncle Don and my grandpa went to the overseer about it. But yeah, nothing changed. He was protected. He kept being the elder of the meeting. But my mom, as a three-year-old, she completely could remember that, which is phenomenal for a three-year-old, which tells you is very emotionally charging for her. And so anyway, I grew up thinking, wow, you know, happened to me. It happened to my aunts. It happened to my mom. But that's just us, you know, had Mm -hmm. no idea. And then when Brewergate happened, the realization that it wasn't just a few of us, but it's literally a multitude of us. And they're saying now that the average perpetrator it has 117 victims, which is on the lower side. And if you do the math of um, EFTT's phone calls of uh, 550 or more now, that's mm-hmm. like 61,000 victims. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, which it's is just a mind-boggling number. Yeah. And I'm inclined to think that um, probably there's victims outside of this fellowship as well, because a, a perpetrator doesn't necessarily exclusively go after. But what we look at is within this fellowship, there there has been a maybe a set of beliefs and traditions and structures that have led to this behavior being covered up, um, being swept under the rug, pre- trying to preserve an image. You know, you, you talk about authenticity and, and like being honest and being forward. And part of the, 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 the purpose of this podcast, this show is to lay bare some of the things, the realities of this, because you know, if if we're going to be a part of this fellowship, we want to be able to be a part of it without shame. Mm-hmm. And it's it's awful to think that there's you know there's been a system in place that has allowed this these sort of patterns of behavior to flourish. And we think about protecting one perpetrator and, and maybe saving one person from a humiliation based on form and appearance, and how many victims were created because of that way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's horrific. It's just horrific. And the psychology behind all of it is it's fascinating, but it doesn't make it right. And I'm doing this podcast and I'm doing the other things that I'm doing because I really feel strongly that silence is complicity. And I know not a lot of people can go out and talk or do something. It's just more than they could ever bear. And they say, all I can do is pray. And I tell people, you know what, that's the most powerful thing you can do. But God raised us all up and he gave us different talents. And we're going to be held accountable someday when we face God, the judge, all by ourselves. There won't be any advocates there at that point. Jesus is our advocate now, but we're going to face him. And he's going to say, you were given this knowledge. It was revealed to you. What did you do? And just because I truly believe that, I am fighting for what's right. I'm fighting for our fellowship. I love the fellowship. I love how I feel after a fellowship meeting. It's like I call it a spiritual potluck. It's amazing. I feel fed. I love being held accountable to bring bread to my spiritual potluck every Sunday. Um, This is a fellowship worth fighting for. It's a ministry worth fighting for. But there is no more deception allowed. There's no more cover-ups. That This has to change. And to me, Jonathan, the solution is so simple. It is. Uh, just, just being willing to speak, being willing to. And, and on that note, I really, again, I want to uh, applaud your, your courage and express my gratitude and for all of the other survivors who, who might be out there. And it's not that uh, that everybody has to come forward and share their story on a platform like this. This is a very difficult thing to do. It right. takes great courage to be vulnerable. And, uh, you know, you're, you're able to do this partly because of, uh, or maybe largely in part because of all of the work that you've done that got you to the place where you realize that this was not your fault. You, you didn't choose any of any of the things that happened to you. You didn't ask for any of the things that happened to you. And um, not, not that we want to be, uh, prideful, but I think you you yeah. can you can be proud of your courage and the work that you've put in, 
And we give we give credit to God for where credit is due for giving you the strength and guiding you through all of this. But you know, we can also acknowledge with gratitude that you know you've done the work that puts you in the place where you can be an advocate and you can share your story and you can inspire courage and and help others. So I, I greatly appreciate that. And just as we as we close out, um, I always like to close out with maybe some words of encouragement or some words of wisdom. You can direct it towards anybody you'd like to, whether it's people on the outside, on the inside. Um, but if there was, if there's one thing that you would hope people would take away from listening to our conversation today, what would that be? Well, I I keep thinking about that verse in Isaiah that says, "God will give us beauty for ashes." And we know life has seasons, right? There's the winter, the summer, and the fall and the spring. And some seasons are more difficult than others. And I'd say this is the most difficult season I've ever been through. It's like a harsh winter. But there will be beauty from the ashes. There will be so much joy more than sorrow, if we can just stay faithful to God. And one of the things that this has done for me is it's shown me the strengths and the beauty that I've already experienced in my life because of the hardships. And and so I look at um, those hardships now were opportunities to grow. And I'm really thankful for that because I wouldn't be the person I've become. And I don't mean to sound like, oh, I'm bragging or whatever, but I'm a pretty strong person and I'm a pretty feisty, um, feisty fighter, you might say, because <laughs> yeah. I will stand for victims and I will stand for them no matter what the cost, because <laughs> there comes a time when, you know, God's going to hold me accountable. And I think that all the battle taught me to be tough. <laughs> Well, Rhonda, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being on today. Thank you for, for sharing your story. And I look forward to future conversations with you. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for tuning into The Hidden Truth. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. It is so important that these stories are heard so that we continue to raise awareness and support victim survivors in their healing journey. For those who have been affected but haven't found your voice yet, I hope these stories inspire you to keep moving forward on your healing journey. Take care.